This is Geek Gab with your host, Darnall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, January 28th, 2023. Darnall, how was your week? I'm suspecting things have suddenly gone bad on Dornall's end. <laughs> Just talking at the mute again. Uh, my week has been good. Thank you very much, DW. I've uh, got a, a couple of uh, catching up on my couch potato time. Got a couple of things uh, that we'll, we want to talk about. We could save those for a uh, later week. But something happened last week that I wanted to mention that I'm pretty excited about. Do you want to hear about it? Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> one time, one of these days, you're going to say no, and, and then I won't know what to do. Uh, a friend of the show, Cursova Magazine, uh, they just started another Kickstarter. That's going to be the, through from now the next couple of weeks. And it's the final volume of stories from Jim Brayfogle's Mongoose and Meerkat series. Um, so... We can go a little bit more into that in the future, but uh, I just wanted to point that out. It's called Tales of the Mongoose the Meerkat, The Redemption of Allness. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I meant to mention it last week. Uh, I've already pledged. So I am really excited about that. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe by the end of the campaign, we'll talk to uh, Jim or Alex about it. Um, I'll I'll throw up. Uh, I hope we got some live viewers. I'll just throw up a quick image of the Kickstarter. We got some cool art here, and I'll make sure that the uh, link is in the chat in case anybody's interested. But that's all on the top of my mind this week, Daddy War Pig. How about you? How are you doing? Uh, it's been a really good week. Um, as far as you know, as far as we go, working hard. Um, and we had a great session in the Brew SR. Uh, and there's actually a new session report out on Jeffro's Space blog so people can read about our adventures in outer space absolutely gonzo uh these these bro star guys do not disappoint i had a great time with that thanks for bringing that up uh um, but, it's uh, uh go ahead no i was gonna say but, but other than that there are a lot of good things happening that i just can't talk about yet <laughs> you got it um this, and, and we were talking in the green room, uh, myself and uh, the guest who will formally introduce shortly. We were just talking about gaming. Uh, I don't I, I do not do stompy mech gaming, but apparently we hang out with people who like to have a, a Dungeons and Dragons game set inside a Gamma World post-apocalyptic setting set inside a giant spaceship from a Traveler game. So there you have it. That's That's the kind of absolute nonsense we get up to. Oh, I like uh, with, that. I like uh, all the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 
they uh, we could talk about that we happen we managed to make a turducken uh oh my goodness uh we made it they made a turducken like i said a dnd game can fit uh in a gamma world setting because they're both post-apocalyptic settings which can fit inside a uh, metamorphosis alpha giant generation ship which fits perfectly in a traveler game <laughs> um so i am i'm excited about our guests today can i can i do the guest introduction please do i'm actually going to be afk for for one bit of a personal thing that just came up be right back okay um our guest today is blaine uh l pardo who is uh best known uh, as a uh, voluminous writer. Um, one is almost tempted to say profligate writer of Battletech novels. Um, I am given to understand one of the most popular writers of Battletech novels uh, until a recent incident, which we will talk about in the air. and. Um, also uh, alternate history and other books. He has uh, just recently within the last, I believe two weeks ago, yeah. released a book with Wargate publishing um, an imprint of uh, uh, Nick Cole and um, Jason Onspock. Man, my memory today is shot. I got bad, bad sleep. Jason Onspock, who write Forgotten Ruin, and they write Galaxy's Edge. Friends of the show. They've been on the show more than a couple of times. And uh, it is a... And, you know, hold your horses here, folks. Sounds so much fun. Um, it is a mech book about alien invaders um, coming to Earth and making war on Earth. And we have to fight them off in mech suits. Um, and I probably should just be reading the blurb off the back of the book because it sounds much more entertaining than what I'm making it sound like. So because I'm one of the hosts, I get to dictate what order we do things in. And I wanted to talk about the, the Battletech books and his history there and his career and the other books he's written and, and what happened with Battletech. But first I want to talk about his new novel because it just sounds awesome. So we're going to start with that. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. I got to tell you, the, the first book splashed out. It's been a bestseller on Amazon. I've been really pleased with it. You know, it's that wonderful mix of military sci-fi, uh, alien invasion. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a good romp. Anytime you get to blow up aliens, lots of fun. So how did you come to work with... Uh, on Spock and Cole. Yeah, 
it was great because Brent Evans came up with the idea for the Land and Sea series, and he and I and a few other folks over at Creative Juggernaut worked through the ideas. We'd written the books, and the books have been written a couple of years ago. Um, when I got canceled from Battletech, I was approached by five different authors or five different publishing companies that reached out to me, and a lot of authors. Who and, and the publishers were great because they were like, look, we don't care about your politics. We don't care what the woke mob is saying. All we're interested in is you've got fans. You write this genre. You're really good in this genre. Why don't you come write for us? So uh, uh, Walt, who is uh, you know one of the acquisition editors over at Wargate, reached out to me. And, and all he really said was, look, the guys have been through this themselves. You know, um, if there's anything they can do for you, they'd like an opportunity to do it, you know, which was incredibly nice and supportive. Um, so Walt and I started talking and I said, well, I do have this series that we've we've written the first three books for. And we were going to kickstart these things and do them ourselves. But, you know, maybe it would be good to partner with you guys and see if we can find a happy hunting ground. Um, where everybody could make some money and uh, Wargate was all over it. I, I interviewed the other publishers as well. Um, but Wargate kind of rose to the top because they had gamers that were, you know, on their editorial team. Uh, they had experienced some of the woke backlash, et cetera. They understood military sci-fi, which, you know, is the genre I wanted to play in. Um you know, it, it just on every level we connected and connected strongly. So uh, we decided to enter into an agreement with them, and the result was uh, we we uh, came up with a very aggressive plan for the this series. Uh, the The initial plan is to have six books out this first year, but the first five books are all written at this point, and four of them have been through the editor. Uh, the first three books are going to come out uh, as you've the first book's out already, they're coming out a month apart. So it's not like your typical series where you're sitting around waiting for the author to write them um, and, and wait for those to come back, you know, and, and for years at a time, George R.R. R. Martin. Um, you're going to get the books a month apart. And uh, I think that's a lot of fun. And so far, the first book's out. The fan reaction's been phenomenal uh, from it. And book two drops on the 16th of February. So we're, we're all pretty excited about that. Um, the, uh, I just keep on coming back to the fact the book sounds fun to read be, because the concept is so... Um, Grabby is the term I want to use, uh, which is a uh, is an unfortunate turn of phrase that uh, uh, has been thrown at me as far as descriptions for what book blurbs need to be. Um, which I guess in this case, absolutely it was. Why don't you go ahead, if you couldn't, and give your uh, best pitch of the concepts of the of the books well yeah this is a mix of tom clancy the expanse um some good old stompy mech action and military sci-fi kind of all blurring together um it, it's set 20 years in the future in the year uh 2049 uh, the uh 
the or 2039 the aliens uh, have invaded but we didn't know it and they they essentially have been landing in the oceans for the last five years establishing their bases and what you see in the first book is the initial probing attacks so it, it was kind of fun because whereas Battletech is built on a lot of what I call hand wavium, you know, you have to kind of suspend a lot of disbelief here. We built our, our, our combat suits, which are called Osher rigs around real world technologies. Um, they're not three-story robots running at 97 kilometers an hour. It's more like a power armor suit that you might see from the movie Avatar uh, or something along those lines. Um, and we based it off reality. It's not everybody running around in next, you know, in these Osher rigs blowing things up. You know, you have a traditional platoon and in that platoon, you're going to have an Osher rig assigned to it. So it's more conventional combined arms approach to this. And uh, the aliens do show up. And when they show up, it's bad. Because if you think about how we're set up to defend our country. We're not really set up to be attacked on both coasts at the same time, let alone the entire world being attacked uh, on their coasts. And most humans live, you know, within 30 or 40 miles of some coastline. And suddenly that all becomes a, an at-risk territory. So it's an ensemble cast of characters, which I think is a lot of fun rather than just tell the story of one person we, I have seven or eight characters that, that are going to kind of explore this universe from us from a lot of different perspectives. And some of their stories really don't emerge until you get into book two, but you really, it, it's a lot of world building and a lot of character development to kind of get you to that satisfying big first reveal battle with these aliens. And the aliens are very different. Their technology is not based on mechanics but based on biology. So instead of firing a laser, they use high pressure water cutters, you know, that cut just like a laser. They use gas weapons. They use sonic weapons. They use things that could be created or manipulated through bioengineering. And that makes them very dangerous and, and very different than what you're kind of used to when you're dealing with alien tech. And I think it makes it a little more fun and gives a great juxtaposition for some of the characters, you know, to cope with this great unknown because, you know, everybody's built for the last war that they fought, not for the war that they're now being forced to. So it's a lot of fun for me. Um, so I'm going to dive deep and ask a strange question that uh, I'm sure will annoy the audience to no end. Um, it's it's about the world building you were talking about. Oh yeah. Um, the platoons that are organized around the mech. Uh, I'm assuming you have the way you stated it, it made it seem like you have one mech per platoon. More or less. Uh, you there's only a couple of special forces units that are going to be outfitted with Asher rigs more extensively. These are more support weapon platforms, uh, and their size is such that. They're around nine to 12 feet tall, you know, the, with the capability of getting a little bit smaller. So, you know, as you do that, that allows them to be able to actually enter some buildings, especially the smaller rigs. So you, it, it really changes the nature of urban warfare. You know, you take a tank into a built up area, it, you know, 
it always favors the defenders. You know, uh, with an Osher rig now, you, you've got a higher degree of mobility and can get into narrow alleys and stuff that a tank simply can't traverse. So it, it does provide a really cool basis for this. And we, and we didn't want to get kind of caught up in, like Battletech had been, which Brent and I both, you know, came from Battletech. We didn't want to get into this where it was all about the mechs. And, and what we wanted to do is tell stories about people, not about equipment. And, and to me, that, that makes it a little more wholesome and a little bit more entertaining than, than some of the traditional stuff I've been writing over the years. So uh, as the platoons are organized, is the uh, Asha rig uh, an integral element of a platoon or is it more like uh, an attached um uh auxiliary it's a little bit of both um osher pilots are kind of the best of the best to be, to do what they do um so they're kind of an elite unit and they have a higher degree of tactical discretion um they're not really married necessarily to what you'd see in normal military doctrine um and, and as such, you, you get a higher degree of flexibility about how they're employed, et cetera. Um, they can be a little bit more in your face uh, than you, you might see normally with an infantry who's trying to build a good kill box and kind of pull the enemy into it or, or disrupt the enemy, you know, through normal tactics. The Osher gives, gives at least one, you know, heavily armed unit a great deal of mobility. Plus we have, ground erotic drones or GRDs, which are semi-autonomous drones that can carry heavy equipment, ammo, they can extract wounded people out of the battle zone, et cetera. So it, it's a real robust universe that we've kind of built out around not just the rigs, but but the uh, the supporting units and elements of uh, combat. You know, nothing's better, you know, if you don't have to carry a Carl Gustav into battle and if a drone can carry it in for you, all the better, you know. Um, so in traditional urban warfare with armor, the infantry is basically necessary to watch for, um, you know, people popping up with Molotov cocktails or with RPGs or with, tank killing uh ordinance or you know they've said ieds or whatever um is an osher shoot vulnerable to those kind of things or or dependent on the uh infantry and its platoon for those kinds of service or um is it just there uh in its role of support and because of its size it can spot those things on its own um, and engage in the infantry is just there to be more eyes all around. Uh, it's really integral to the actual unit itself. I, I think that an Osher can take damage from small arms fire. Uh, it's not highly susceptible to that, but it can. An RPG certainly will damage it. Um, we tried to base this because we're building a game off of this as well. We're having an RPG that we've already designed as well as a tabletop game that integrates into this. And it's really based on real world stuff. So it, when you're doing with that, you know, yeah, small arms can potentially, you know, nick a hydraulic line or something and cause some real problems. Um, it's rarer for that to happen as opposed to let's say an RPG, which could, you know, do much more extensive damage. Um, 
So, you know, the infantry is required. You can't just throw an Asher out there by itself and expect to achieve some sort of tactical success. It really has to work with its supporting infantry uh, to be truly successful. Now, we are going to have some instances where Ashers are, by their very nature, you know, because they can forward deploy so quickly and they are up armored and heavily armed. There are going to sometimes be so far uh, on the tip of the spear that they're operating on their own, but they, they always kind of rely on some supporting infantry to be able to back them up. All right, that was my digression to military tactics. <laughs> That's okay. I'm literally sitting here. I mean, I got my small unit tactics book here and my ranger uh, guidebook here. So, yeah, I immerse myself in this stuff. Uh, well, I, I that, been, goes, that goes my follow-up questions. I have been uh, recently reading several books that have a very, uh, very tight focus on tactics. And uh, so it's on my mind. And uh, I have been considering tactics, especially with mech tactics. Um and specifically, I've been considering, you know, a unit of mechs organized like a unit of, uh, like a tank platoon. Um, oh, yeah. So I've been, uh, I was very interested in, in what you were saying with uh, how Osher rigs were oriented. So that's why I went there, guys. Oh, we can okay. go back to. I, lo I love talking this stuff. I live this stuff right now. So. Um, I, I, I love it too. Actually, forgive me for being dense, but I, uh, the, one of the things that we talked before the show, I'm a big gamer, but I've never been a stompy mech gamer. Uh, and, and so the thing that always bothered me about it is, is that the, the whole idea of mechs as a, as a unit don't seem to be practical, right? They seem to be, you know, very expensive to make, they, uh, you know, in compared to a tank. So it was interesting to hear, uh, what you had to say about, urban warfare and their ability to, to maneuver around. Um, oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, that's, a, I think always been a problem with some universes when they deal with, you know, max is they just get built and because they're overwhelming firepower that makes them dangerous. And, you know, to me, you actually have to have a reason to have Asher rigs and, Asher rigs are great because they can get up close and personal to enemy tanks and inflict a hell of a lot of damage, you know, and they can do it because they're extreme mobility, because being only nine to 12 feet tall, you can run in an Asher rig and, and, and get up close to the enemy that you might not normally do if you were normal infantry, you know, you're going to get shot at in a lot of different directions, et cetera. So it really forces some real world tactical considerations into this. And, and that was kind of the core of where we went with it. And to your point, you're right. These things cost money and they require an extensive amount of training. And, you know, having an entire army of Ashers doesn't necessarily make sense, nor does it solve all the problems you have, you know, in terms of where you've got to go and how can you hold and seize ground. Uh, it sounds like one of those military boondoggles, like, uh, I forget the name of the latest jet they made. Is it the F-35? I could yeah. just be making things up. Uh, 
big, expensive, flashy, lots of firepower when, uh, you know, previous gen stuff might do. Um, where did you come up with the, uh, you mentioned all the various different types of weaponry that these aliens are, are bringing to bear, you know, the, the wa water pressure cannons and, and stuff like that. Uh, is that based off of any uh, practical research or real world experience that you have? Well, we, we took a look at it from a biological perspective and said, yeah, I, it'd be cool if aliens had lasers, but ours are coming out of the water. They're clearly aquatic. And so, you know, everything kind of centers around that as well as the, you know, these are grown, these aliens are, there's several different species of them that, that are encountered and they're grown for specific mission or tactical objectives. And so we really had to take a look at that and say, so what are we going to do that's different and unique? So, you know, having the ability to unleash a caustic gas that can corrode, you know, organic tissue, really kind of cool. You know, it's not just your normal gas warfare where it's like, oh my God, I'm choking on this. It's like, no, it's eating my flesh. Um, you know, having the ability to squirt a, a molecular acid that can damage armor, you know, and, and damage equipment very easily. Utilizing sonic weapons made sense because the alien, you know, a lot of fish use tonal language to communicate. So sonics clearly was going to play a part in this. So there's a lot of elements of that that we just took a look at from normal marine biology and said, okay, what if we amp this up a little bit? What if we enhance it and weaponize, you know, something that's already in nature and make it a little more interesting and a lot more deadly? Uh, you know, my mind, uh, that that's a great way to approach it. And I can, I think I can see how you got from A to B. Uh, but I can't help but think of all the dangerous things in marine biology. Uh, is there is there an alien Sharknado attack? No, it, not Sharknado. No, we, we really want to make this so that we really want it so that when people read this, if they're ex-military, they're going to go, okay, I can kind of see that happening. Or I understand how that technology operates or whatever. It, the more... We'll get a little weird later on in the series, and, and there's going to be more of that. But uh, we really wanted to make it so it's a little more palatable, at least at the entry points to this, which is the first trilogy of books. It's going to kind of get you into the universe easily so that you can understand it. And then the books that follow kind of stand alone on their own, except for once a year we're going to try to do a trilogy of books that kind of advance the storyline a lot more. Um, so there's a lot of fun to it. Plus, you get all the cool stuff of everybody fighting back. You know, this is one of those games that, because it's only 20 years in the future, you can take a modern Google view of Los Angeles or Seattle or, or any coastal city and actually play it out. Use that as part of your game terrain. And, and that kind of makes it fun and interesting as well. Plus, you can have militia units. Uh, freedom fighting units, et cetera, that are not necessarily military, that are quasi-military, that are out there fighting against the aliens. So we really wanted it from a game perspective for people to be able to create a character and go, hey, I'm going to fight in my hometown. You know, I'm in Jacksonville or wherever. I'm going to fight the aliens there and I'm going to form a militia unit around my character and 
you know, work from there. So we really wanted to make it a great entry point for people across the board. Uh, that's great. And that you have, uh, you are hitting my buttons right now, as far as gaming goes. Uh, what, uh, what is what is the actual plan for publishing games? Are you publishing scenarios or are you publishing whole rule systems? Or well, We're going to come out with our own rule system. Um, it, the initial design work is done for the RPG and the tabletop. Um, we are in the process of kind of going through testing the tabletop rules in-house first before our Hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be into doing kind of public play tests of the tabletop and the RPG rules and sometime following year, be able to release them. Great. Uh, let's, let's hope you stay out of the uh, open gaming license. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it's funny. We, we actually had that discussion uh, a couple of weeks ago, especially with the orc license that, uh, you know, came out of Piazzo and, and, and counter to all that. And we took a look at, cause we've already done the initial design and it was, is it going to take us more effort, the same effort or less effort if we were to adopt somebody else's, you know, mechanics to this. And we kind of came to the conclusion we'd rather own our own mm -hmm. than, than be tied to some other company, you know, because one thing that this has done, and I know a lot of people are going, oh, we'll go over to Piazzo and that'll make it all better. You're still dealing with another company that kind of control has a controlling degree of your product. And at any point they can opt to screw you over. Um, while they may not be doing it now, they may do it down the road. So for at least the time being, we're looking at doing stuff all on our own. It kind of harkens back to the 1980s and early 90s when everybody was standing up their own systems. And it worked. that whole system worked just fine. There's a lot of great RPGs that came out in the early years that were just fantastic. So, yeah, I think this, if anything, uh, Wizard did everybody a big benefit except for themselves they shot themselves in the foot and now you know a lot of game companies need to kind of have the same discussions we've been having in-house do you want to tie yourself to another company or do you want to go solo good call yeah it, for now it works now you know if we get into this and the mechanics don't work real well we may have to revisit that but i don't think that's going to be the case uh, the nice thing is uh, that the nature of military war games and sci-fi mech combat games is that uh, for anybody who loves the stuff, whatever you produce will be adaptable to lots of other systems too. There, there's going to be people that bastardize our stuff that they'll take the Osher rigs and use them in battle tech or in, you know, heavy gear or whatever. I fine, whatever, you know, I, I I'm not one of these guys. It's a huge, purists going, well, you got to use our miniatures for our game only because you can't actually maintain and manage that. It's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you want to play it with, go play with it. You know, have some fun. I hope you play our game, but you know, if you don't, well, you're at least playing with our miniature. Um, and that's, and you're talking about the, the publishers, you're talking about Wargate publishing. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Wargate isn't handling our RPG or the tabletop rules. Although there's, we're, we're going to try to find some ways to get them involved, but they are helping us sell the miniatures. I mean, we've already done a production run of a hundred of these little, uh, Osher rig miniatures from the first book. Uh -huh. And so they're, you know, they're selling those for us and they're selling, you know, our normal merch, you know, we've got, 
patches. Uh, we have some shirts that are being created. We have some posters that are going to be coming out. It, there's a whole bunch of stuff. It, Wargate has been so great to work with. Uh, and they've gotten so much experience with their Galaxy's Edge line. So we're just working with them and having a good time. I'm like a 14-year-old oh, kid. I'm just trapped in a 60-year-old body. <laughs> uh, that was uh, that was a follow-up from a listener of Fiona Wolf is asking if you're having fun with them. Absolutely. They have been a blast to work with. And every step of the way, we have not had a single thing where we've got, oh, my God, you know, what's going on here? Uh, the Wargate guys are just fun. And they get it, and they, their their whole thing is: so, what can we do to enable you further? What can we do to help? You know, and, and they've really worked with us on every aspect of this, um, creatively uh, on through. So I, I can't speak highly enough about Wargate. And they're they're all in on you today. The the whole front page of the Galaxy's Edge website is about land and sea. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I, we're hoping that we're making money for everybody on this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let's go back to the chat. Uh, Jim H., who's uh, he's already got your book. He says he's seventy-five percent through. I think he's I think he's looking for a little inside info. He asks, "Are the small aliens that attack people in the coastal cities sentient, or robotic cannon fodder? Are all the various well, aliens?" They're they're more cannon fodder. They are like a. a I don't want to ruin it for anybody who gets into it, so I'm not going to explain it in great detail, but they're kind of like a school of piranhas and, and they operate that way. Um, you know, are the various alien different forms to meet a purpose? Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we have, a, we have an alien that the humans refer to as a Fox that is really an intelligence gathering or scout. Uh, we have crabs, which uh, that's what the, the troops call them. You know, there's no point in trying to come up with these complicated names uh, there, this is the miniature for the crab. Oh, wow. And by the way, that's the scale. This is the scale with the Osher ring, too. So, uh, That's big Starship Troopers vibe. Yeah, it, it, they're fun. And, you know, the, I, I'm not going to get into how much intelligence they have because that's where the part of this that kind of ties into the expanse, you know, when you start reading the Expanse series, you don't know what the protomolecule is. And even when you're five books in, you're not 100% sure what entirely the protomolecule is for, why it was developed, etc. cetera. You, you, you fill in those gaps on your own. And that's how it would be during an actual alien invasion. So we're not putting all the cards on the table. There's not going to be a moment where it's like Independence Day where you can upload a virus, blow up the mothership, and the invasion's over this invasion is going to go on for a long time and you're going to learn stuff all along the way. And part of the fun as a reader is you're going to have to invent some of your own theories and ideas around what's actually happening and what does that mean, et cetera. We're going to be spoon feeding you bits and pieces as we go though. But uh, unlike, uh, unlike episodes of lost, there actually is an answer you have in mind. Oh yeah. Uh, you're not you're not trying to tease it out. It's just not. Well, no, we, we want to make it's, it. It's just, we want to make the discovery just like for the characters in the book. They're trying to figure everything out. So is the reader, and I think put, that makes the characters in the book a little more palatable and a little more believable because 
the reader's going through exactly what the characters are going through. There's confusion. I don't understand this. Is there a bigger meaning here versus there? I want to. I want the 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 reader to experience that just like the characters do. I probably bore right. you guys stiff with this stuff. <laughs> oh uh, no, not at all. Uh, but I think we probably want to move on. Uh, Warpig also mentioned uh, that uh, we he wanted to talk about your time writing for BattleTech and and what happened just recently with uh, with the internet mobs coming after you. Yeah, well, it was the best of times and the worst of times. Um, yeah, I've been writing BattleTech since 1985 i contributed to the first technical readout um wrote a lot of the original source books uh, snords of regulars and you know scenario sets technical man tech readouts all that stuff i contributed some of the infantry rules to the game um you know, i've always I've, I've had a very active role in that i've written i i've lost track of the number of novels i've written for BattleTech. Uh, including, you know, kind of Hour of the Wolf, which ended one era in Battletech and introduced another. Um, throughout this period, yeah, I, I'm a conservative. I don't hide that. Uh, I'm not a crazy nut job. I'm not Quanon. I had to look up what that was when somebody said I was one. Um, you know, I just believe in conservative ideals, and I don't hide from that. I, you know... I had a crazed online stalker for a couple of years that um, swore up and down that I was hiding secret messages in my book about the Confederacy and things along those lines. And Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. And, and this person eventually reached out to a fellow author and said, you know, I want to shoot Blaine in the crotch or better yet, want to set him on fire. Uh, that resulted in me starting a police investigation into this person for obvious reasons, because they're a little unhinged. Um, the person claimed to be a lesbian trans person and just a month ago announced online that, by the way, that was all a lie. Oh, um, uh -huh. So they were kind of pulling the I'm a victim card out quite a bit of, you know, uh, during this. Um, the person made several other threats as well. Police felt that they were validated. Uh, I got a personal protective order against this individual. But it wasn't enough for this person. This person continued to harass me online, especially when I did uh, my alternate history series, Blue Dawn. Um, they did, just the announcement of that was what triggered this individual to threaten me. Um, so, you know, this person organized an online campaign against me, and the license holders, uh, Tops and Fanatics, reached out to Catalyst and said, you know, this needs to go away. Catalyst decided that after 36 plus years of uh, writing for them, that they would cancel all of my contracts, including books that were done, stories that were done, et cetera, were all canceled. Um, and, yeah, you know, I, I told Lauren at the time, the president of Catalyst, I said, you know, you need to talk to the fans about this. I don't want you to throw me under the bus, but you've got to explain to the fans because they're going to be asking me where these books are. I was assured that would take place. It didn't. So I went public with it and, and said, you know, I've been canceled. The woke mob came after me and canceled me. Um, and it was a very rough period of time to do that. Um, it, you know, kind of the Baltic community either sided with me or sided with my crazy nut job stalker. Um, 
you know, and, and so it was interesting to go through that. And out of that, though, I ended up where I am today, which is much better off. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a weird journey you go on when you're going through it. You absolutely hate it. I mean, people are calling you all sorts of names. They're mining your social media and taking things and twisting them into something that they're not, uh, or they're inventing things that never happened um, and, and creating fake posts and saying, this is what he said, but he took it down, but I did a screenshot of it. And it's like, I never said that and never took anything down. And that's not me, but Hey, you want to run with that? That's fine. You know, I had so many weird examples of stuff that came out of that, you know, and I'll give you a classic example. Uh, somebody posted a picture of Joy Behar and I just posted a tweet underneath it. And all I said on the comment was you could throw that woman in a pond and skim ugly for a week. <laughs> now to you chuckle and I'm hoping Warpig chuckled too. Um, you know, simple comment, but what they turned around and said, look, he's a misogynist. All right. Yeah. This is the male patriarchy speaking of him. This is white privilege. This is, you know, they, they amplify anything that you say, they, they turn around and go, see, that's what you did. And I'm like, look, it's a joke. And if, if I offended anyone out there who wanted to have sex with Joy Behar, I don't apologize. Um, <laughs> that you got problems, you need to deal with that on your own. But you know what I'm saying is it just, it was a rough time. I didn't like it, but publishers and authors started reaching out to me that they had been through this, that they understood. They either supported my politics or they didn't care what my politics were. They're just like, Hey, you know, you've got fans. You're clearly an experienced writer. Can you come work for us? Um, yeah, I've got a little project coming out that I contributed to with Bain Books. I've got, you know, the stuff with Wargate. Um, you know, it's been a great experience. I've met a lot of new writers. I've been reading a lot of books. I ended up getting my own little internet show where I read, you know, kind of in the indie writer market. I read their stuff and interview the authors about their books after I've read them. And it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I guess the the bottom line is the woke mob kind of failed. You know, they wanted me to not be writing stompy mech books anymore. Surprise, I got my own series and it's a bestseller. So, you know, I'm going to continue doing what I do. And the fans that want to come along with me, well, they'll come along with me. Uh, the ones that don't, they don't have to. Well said. Uh, the best revenge, they say, is living well. Yes. Yeah, being successful has irritated a lot of them. And, you know, it's... They, they voiced it online and I ignore it. Um, I guess they think that stuff bothers me after a year of this stuff at this point, it really doesn't bother me in the least. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the blue Dawn series. So now oh, you yeah. have my attention because I actually don't know anything about that. I uh, wanted I just to write. That. It's a reference <laughs> to red Dawn. It is. It's a great <laughs> reference to Red Dawn. I play, pay my homage where it's due. Uh, and John Milius was brilliant when he did Red Dawn. And you know, I, I, it's still one of my favorite flicks. I, did, I wanted to write a alternate history book about Second American Civil War. And to set the background for that is the first book in that series, Blue Dawn. The third book just released this month, which is Confederacy of Fear. 
Um, and what I really wanted to do was let the progressives get everything they want. So they violently overthrow the government, kill the conservative president, um, which is Donald Trump at the time. Um, and they get everything they want. So they implement everything that they want and they silence all of the voices. They put a censorship bureau in place called the Truth Reconciliation Committee. I want to thank Joe Biden for his Internet Governance Board for really helping me with that uh, for misinformation wise. Um, <laughs> you know, they literally lock up the conservatives in what's called social quarantine camps. Antifa, which really is kind of the parallel of the brown shirts and the stormtroopers, you know, from the, the Nazi era are turned into social enforcers who hold their own little tribunals and implement justice, you know, at will on the streets as social justice. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, you know, if you're a conservative, it's a very dark time. And the book is set five years after those events take place. And it's about the people who kind of rise up. And it's not necessarily to restore what America was. They've renamed America New America, um, you know, because they can't have anything that ties to the past. And, you know, it, it's an ensemble cast of characters, again, um, that kind of go, you know, it's not that we want to go back to the way things were, but we can't stand the way things are. And I think that's a feeling a lot of people have at this point. Um, themselves. And this is that story. And it leads into the second book um, that really starts the American, the second American Civil War with an open election that goes very poorly uh, for all sides involved and results in violence, much like what happened when Lincoln was elected president. And then the third book really gets into, you know, the actual lines of demarcation in the Civil War Fourth book carries that on, and I'm, I'm literally going to finish this weekend, I believe, the fifth book in the series. So <laughs> I'm having a great time with it. To me, it's alternate history, and it spurs some really good conversations and debates with people. Um, most of the stuff in there I've based on all real-world stuff. It's things that pe politicians have said. I just simply amped it up to that level where it's uh, it's scary. It sounds like um, a reasonable extrapolation from where we are now, um, uh, and a great setup for that sort of that sort of story. So you have an ensemble cast, but what are what is the main actual conflict? Is that with that a sort of oppressive uh, government or? Yeah, it is, and people always joke about this. The, the person that I based the, the lead character who's kind of the darkest of the dark villains is based on AOC. So it's, it, and she's not this bumbling idiot. She, she's really a, a high level functioning genius in many respects, a true believer, which makes people always dangerous. And, you know, it, it, you get to see that uh, there's a lot of parallels to the French revolution. You know, when you violently overthrow the government, there's a point where the revolutionaries turn on themselves. And so you're going to get elements of that. You're going to get elements of the parallel a little bit of the civil war, uh, but it's a very different kind of civil war. You can't fight a civil war the way we did the first time around in the United States as it is today. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool dynamics that come out of this. And I have, a, I have these groups called the sons of Liberty that, 
you know, have kind of been carrying the torch for the old ways and they're, they're helping fight back. You have a lot of national guard units going with one side or the other. Uh, the department of defense kind of stands down during all of this. And there's a, there's a real good reason for that, um, for a lot of respects, but, uh, it's explained in the series. And so you watch these characters have to try to resolve, you know, the, this conflict and and some of their own personal conflicts um, that emerge through all of this and it's it's a great journey I've I've mapped out these character arcs through about ten books at this point so we'll see where it goes but I'm like I said I'm wrapping up book five so it's going to continue on oh that sounds great and I hope uh, I hope some of these things don't going to be true is as weird as it is i you know I, I i had somebody post the other day to me they said you know it's kind of like the left is reading your book and following it you know and i and i was like it wasn't meant to be a blueprint <laughs> it, was, it was just a piece of fiction and good fiction should spawn good discussions good healthy debates it should be the kind of thing where you read it and go i don't think that could happen but i think that definitely could happen. And and mm -hmm. I want that with people because I think as conservatives, we don't do a good job of articulating well um, what things would look like if the other side got everything they wanted. But to do it in fiction, it really makes it something tangible and something that people can identify with. And, and that's all the goal here. It's just, it's, they're great stories about great characters. And that's all I ever wanted to do anyway, is write good stories. Um, that does sound like a, a great story and sort of a, a, a chilling idea. Um, I'm going to get on one of my hobby horses that I, I don't often uh, speak about, especially on the show, because we're typically a, a all fun, no politics kind of show. But we can't talk about this stuff without talking about it. Um, what, and I hope this isn't a spoiler for the ending of your Blue Dawn series, it's clear for us to see how the cancel culture and 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 that sort of uh, that current weird leftist uh, culture, we can sort of see where that could go. And and you've you've made a great description of that in the setting of Blue Dawn. What is the inverse of that? What's the positive vision of what happens when? your side or the way you think uh, you yourself, what's the, what's the positive inverse of that? What happens when the other guys win? What's, what's the, what's the other? Well, you know, it, it, that's part of what the characters are trying to figure out is what kind of a country do we really create out of all of this? And that's a journey that the, the characters themselves are going on. I think a lot of it comes back to personal responsibility um, there's a certain level of accountability and responsibility people have for their actions and their deeds and their words, and they have to own that. Um, I've seen that with the woke, they, they can literally get someone fired and I've experienced this and there's no repercussions to them. There's no, this never happened. Nothing bad happens to them. They move on to their next target and they always have to have a target. 
And I think one of the things that will bring about the end of this kind of cancel culture thing is I think there's going to be legislation at some point that holds these people accountable for what they're doing, it, it, be it financially or be it criminally. And I think that is going to be a big piece of this. Um, I think that when you start getting down to it, you can't just say, well, it's society and, you know, these are just, you know, this is the repercussions of people's actions. So it's okay. It's like, no, it's not okay. It wouldn't be okay if you and I um, had a disagreement and I decided to call your boss and say, you know what? Um, your guy was calling me all sorts of racist and sexist things online and you should fire him. And that's literally what the cancel culture crowd is doing. And they think that's cute and they think it's funny. And, you know, I, I think that what has to emerge from this that's positive is a level of individual and personal accountability again. Um, and that people can be tolerant of other people's ideals. I think where cancel culture goes too far is they go, look, the old system was very simple. If I don't like your book, I'm not going to, or I don't like your politics, I'm not going to buy your books. Okay, that's fine. Systems worked, by the way, for centuries. The cancel culture mentality is, I don't like your politics. Nobody else should be able to buy your books and you shouldn't be allowed to publish books anymore. That's the distinct difference. And, and you now have people who are unelected, who are making decisions for society as a whole based on their twisted little set of ideals and standards that they don't even follow. Uh, it's crazy. And I, I think that has to come to an end. And I think that is going to be the positive vision for the United States and, and for the rest of the world. I've talked to my friends in other countries and they're like, what you guys are doing over there is just crazy, you know? And I think this will... That's my view of what a positive outcome could be is just it back, getting back to individual accountability and responsibility in life. Mm. If, uh, if I could say something for authors or writers um, or artists of any stripe, especially people who are looking at values at American traditional values, um, the unfortunate reality of where we are is that you can't go back and make things the way they were. What you can do is go forward and improve your life by adopting those values and honest to goodness um, if you're a good person that will be reflected in your work you will make uh, good-hearted work um, and I deeply believe that there's a line that artistic expression crosses where it ceases being artistic expression and becomes propaganda. And I despise propaganda. Um, I did, well, I despise propaganda that presents itself as entertainment. If you're making entertainment, 
if you're making propaganda, calling it entertainment, I think that's trash. I have contempt for it. Um, and but what's going to happen is if you write a book that is true and that is honest, it's going to seem like it's propaganda right now, even when it isn't, even when it's basically presenting the truth, because culture, movies, TV, books, music, uh, has all been so default, uh, you know, left-wing for so long that that seems normal. That seems to be the received truth. And anything else seems to be political. And all you have to do is present something that is real and authentic. And now that seems political because you're dissenting from the dominant culture. So I would tell people, and this is my belief that I've come to over the last few months pondering this, is that don't make propaganda and call it entertainment. If you want to just make propaganda, that's fine. I, you know, they're your talents. Do with them what you want. But don't make propaganda and call it entertainment. But if you're making entertainment and you're being honest and true and you're reflecting honest and true values, don't be afraid if it looks like a political work. Don't be afraid if it looks like propaganda because you can't help that. You're being truthful, you're being honest, and if it looks like that, so be it. Let the chips fall where they may. Don't worry about it. It's not your problem. That is a problem other people have created. Um, and the opposite of cancel culture is making truthful and positive culture um, and that is so important that I'm telling you don't worry if it looks like propaganda don't worry if it looks political because as long as it's truthful and as long as it's authentic um, and don't worry if it's anti-woke don't look at what woke stuff is and say okay I'm going to make the opposite of that just make something honest just make something truthful because uh Whatever you make is going to be skewed if you take wokeness into account in any way. Just just make what's in your heart. Just make what you know to be right. If you're living a good life, then you'll know what to do. If you're adopting good values, you'll know what to do. You'll know what is what is right and honorable and truthful and virtuous. And and don't take the woke in account in, in any way. That is my thoughts on it, how to go to the opposite of cancel culture. Yeah, I, when I wrote Blue Dawn, I, I, my wife and I talked about it, and she said, you know, there's, this is going to upset people in some respects. And I said, well, you know, I get that, but it's a good story, and it's well-written, and it's fun, and it's, it makes you think, and it teaches historical lessons without going, you know, making you read a book on the French Revolution, for example, 
it, it, you know, it gives you an idea of how this thing can unfold and, and you want to be able to explore that. And, you know, the option was to not do it. And there's unfortunately a lot of what the woke want to do is drive you into a form of self-censorship where you won't write things, you won't publish things, you won't, you know, do these things so that they can essentially dominate. And, and they will drive you into submission. And I'm like, you know, I'll write the story and let's see where this goes. And, you know, I, I've been on a long journey with it. And I'm, in, I'm still happy with it. The characters are still talking to me a great deal. Um, I can attest to that today, especially as I'm getting near the end of a book. The characters are, are on a journey, and I'm going on that journey with them, and I enjoy that, and I'm taking the readers along with me, and that, to me, that's part of the fun. You just got to, if you're going to be a writer, you, you have to accept the fact in this day and age, whatever you write is going to offend someone. The question is, do you care about, about that, and is that significant? Is it intentional to offend them? And, you know, you have to kind of go from that point. Well said. Well, uh, we are ready to start wrapping up. So uh, let's move on if there are any more questions. Uh, chat's been lively, but I don't have any more questions from the chat. Warpig, any last questions or anything for Mr. Pardue? Yeah, I just wanted to ask real quick. I mean, you were involved with Battletech for 36 years. That is such uh, a long career. Um, what is it that you found so compelling about the Battletech universe? Originally, I was drawn to it just like everybody else, the visuals of the big stomping robots firing all sorts of deadly weapons and stuff. The you know the artwork kind of sucks you into it. Um, to me, what I enjoyed was the fictional aspects of it and telling very human stories against a contrast of a culture that's been fighting war for, you know, going on 350, 400 years straight. You know, being able to tell those stories is a lot of fun and, and finding ways to be able to find cool niches in that universe and be able to explore them and exploit them and tell some really good stories about them in a way that nobody had ever done before. And I really enjoyed that aspect. I, you know, a lot of people have been, well, you probably say bad things about Battletech. And I'm like, no, I'm very proud of the work I've done in Battletech. I never called for a boycott during any of this or any of the, anything along those lines. You know, I believe you've got to spend your, you earn your money, you spend it the way you feel fit. Uh, I'm just no longer allowed to write in that universe. That doesn't mean I have a grudge against that universe or that I don't enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I just can't contribute to it anymore. So I'm finding new ways to contribute um, and to be able to tell the stories I like telling about interesting people who are in incredibly you know, difficult circumstances and how they have to rise up to overcome those things. And I think that's part of the the thing that drew me into Battletech and I've been fortunate with you know the land and sea series to be able to get back to that as, as well as Blue Dawn to really get back to talking about characters and talking about strife and talking about how people have to rise up over those things I, it's exciting to me and I really enjoy that aspect I miss Battletech 
but I don't miss it the way that I think a lot of fans think I do. Um, you know, it, it's not a longing to go back to it. I, I wish I could be a part of it, but at this point I need to move on and do the things I want to do. All right. Well um, said. Okay. Uh, and Blaine Pardo, anything that you want to talk about? Hey, all I can say is if you want to get in on the ground floor of a cool sci-fi franchise, obviously Land and Sea is a fun place to go play. Um, it's a neat story. It's different. It's not your typical alien invasion and things get turned around. This is going to be something that kind of pulls you in on a very long journey and it's going to be a blast. Uh, the book four is kind of an anthology of short stories that I've done that tie into the universe and book five, I got to go back to, to some stuff that I've been wanting to do for years. It, it's really book five is kind of a Kelly's heroes kind of a bank robbery in the middle of a war type thing that is just fun to do and different and still gets to tell some great human stories. So, you know, if you're a fan of military sci-fi, that's the place to go play is in land and sea. Sounds great. Um, book two, which is called Riptides is coming out on February 16th. Oh yeah. So it is, uh, it's a good idea to grab book one and give it a read now, so you will be well prepared when book two hits the stores. Yeah, and if Wargate's been so good, they have we finished up this week. I believe we finished up the audiobook recording for it. So you know it'll be out in audio format, hardcover, paperback, uh, ebook. They they've been great to have all the formats out when the book drops. So. And we're doing some fun stuff too. You know, the Brent got the work done on the nose art for the uh, Osher Riggets on the cover of Riptides. It's the only part that's not on there. So that's getting layered in this week, um, which will be hard for people to see, but we're going to have a t-shirt of it because we really wanted to kind of capture that World War II bomber nose art thing for the Oshers where people would you know, paint pictures of their girlfriends or whatever on the sides of the, of the Osher rigs and stuff. So we, we did that with the first book and we definitely have had a lot of fun doing it with the second book. Awesome. And we've got, before we go, one last question from the chat. John A. Douglas asks if Dana blaze will ever get to pilot a mech in a blaze of glory. No, that's not who it's funny. Everybody likes Dana blaze. She's like the most despicable of the characters, you know, but she's so <laughs> damned honest. She's a reporter and she's totally cutthroat in every way, shape and form. And it's all about her and her ratings. And it's so funny because everybody kind of centers on Dana blazes arc is really cool. And there is a, a pure, a point where Dana blaze will have redemption. Um, for, for all of her past sins. And I think that's going to, I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Okay. Well, um, uh, we absolutely uh, uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, thank uh, appreciate you. We appreciate you talking about, uh, you know, the difficulties you had with Catalyst and uh, your new series and uh, your past with Battletech. Um, Dornald, do you want to? I have. Out? 
Oh, I, I, I will I will start the hype train. Also like to express my appreciation for you coming on, talking about all this stuff, especially with your great background and great history. Absolutely fascinating conversation. I hope everybody hanging out live, and sorry about the unlisting the, the show. Uh, I'm glad to see everybody showed up uh, to listen in and ask questions. I hope you guys had a great time. I hope everybody who listens later really enjoyed the conversation. Um, but I am done for this week, Daddy Warpig. So, all right. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Happy to come uh, on anytime. You bet. And let's see if I can remember my lines here. Folks, I want to thank everyone who is listening live and participated in the chat. And for those who are listening later, we appreciate you too. We do this show just about every Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can find us here on youtube.com slash geekgab. Once again, that's youtube.com slash geekgab. Or just because we're the uh, fun, friendly, and frenetic guys we are, you can get us on the Google Play Store, the soundcloud.com, or the Apple iTunes Store. To listen to us on the device of your choice, download us to the computers or listen to us on the web. We are signing out for today, but don't you worry, don't you fret, we will be back.